Good evening. It is so good to be with you, and it's good to have you with us, and it is a joy to join our voices and our hearts together in worship of God. We'll open your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, there's a verse we'll be looking at in a bit. But before we get there, I want to begin by, by simply saying, first of all, there is one right path that leads to God. And therefore, there is one right path that leads to heaven. But at the same time, as we all know, as we look at our world across this globe, there are multitudes of paths that exist that do not. Now, that path that leads to God and that path that leads to heaven is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he alone taught, for example, in John 14, verse 6, when he said that he is the way. Jesus is the way to his Father and our Father as well. Or as the apostles taught in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no other but in the name of Jesus Christ. So there is one right path to God. There is one right path to heaven. Jesus taught of that nature, of that path, in a different in a number of different ways. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when talking about two masters, you recall what he says, you cannot serve two masters. And he goes on to say that you cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. There's only one right path. Another way, he said the same thing in the same context of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, when he talks about there being two paths or two ways or two gates. And he tells us, enter by the narrow gate. That's the gate you need to enter. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And all gates do not lead to eternal life. Truth is absolute. That's the very nature of truth. Whether you're talking about religious, spiritual truth, or any truth, if it is the truth, it is an absolute. Now, the truth of God reveals to us what? Well, it reveals to us his will. It reveals to us his righteousness. So if I want to know the righteousness of God, I must turn to the truth of God. And that righteousness of God is the way. It is the way unto life eternal. And Jesus is the embodiment of that righteousness. The majority, though, of the world, the majority of people who live on this planet reject him. They reject Jesus Christ. They reject the one and true living God, the one who is the light of this world. Most people reject him. And they reject him because they prefer darkness. In John 3, Jesus taught this, that they do not come to the light because they love the darkness. Most people prefer the darkness. And why is that? Well, because... It is in the darkness that they can gratify their minds and their hearts and their bodies. 
any way they want to. And nobody can tell you otherwise. But the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ warns us about this. It warns us about the fact that saints like us can fall away. That there is such a thing as apostasy. That there, that there is the possibility that we may actually pursue something different from sound doctrine. The doctrine of Jesus Christ. So with that being said, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered how that happens to Christians? Have you thought about that? How does that happen to New Testament Christians? What actually transpires to change their course of actions? What is this path? This path that is the path of divergence. How does that happen? How does one of us take the wrong path? One of those paths that do not lead to God the Father. One of those paths that do not lead to life eternal. One of those paths that will not save our soul. How does that happen? Well, the truth is very plain. It is very plain in stating the fact that apostasy will and does occur. So very quickly, I've got just a few verses that are so familiar to you. And so this is not not anything new to us, that this reality exists in the world. And it, it exists even among saints. In Galatians chapter 1. You know the passage when Paul, in writing to those dear brethren of ours of long ago, says, I am amazed. Think about that. Paul says in the very beginning words of this letter to his brethren in the region of Galatia, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different, a different gospel. Paul was amazed at this fact. He goes on to say, which is not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And you know how that passage goes on to expound further about that subject. But very quick, Galatians 1 tells us apostasy is real. Saints, Christians, turning away, it's a real thing. It's a dangerous thing. When Paul writes Timothy in his first epistle, he does so in the second epistle as well. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. And so you're talking about people who are in the faith. They They are in fellowship with the one faith at some point in their walk. With God, and he says, But the Spirit says there will come a time when some, not all, but some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctors of demons by the means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Nothing new, is it? It's the truth. This is the truth. From God. Two more passages that 
express similar warnings, similar admonishments to you and me today. When he says there in the Hebrew letter, Hebrews chapter 3, he says, take care, brethren. Take care. Be careful. Be careful, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, says, watch out that it doesn't happen to you. Because it can. It can. Last example of this, in 2 Peter chapter 3, at the very end of, the, of, of Peter's epistle here, he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. Now, previously, he's just talked about the day of the Lord. We don't know when it's coming, but it is coming. And there will be judgment on that day. And those who are found righteous and blameless will be with God, but those who are not will be judged and condemned. So with that context in mind, Peter closes with this sentiment, this admonishment, when he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you know the Lord's coming back, you know there is a judgment, he says, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. And fall from your own steadfastness. We know the truth. We know the day the Lord is coming. We know we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we have done in our, in our bodies, ourselves. And we know that we're accountable. And he says, be careful. Guard yourself against the fact that there will be men who will try to carry you away and cause you to fall from your steadfastness. You're, you're steadfast right now. Arm yourself. Don't fall from that steadfastness. But it happens, does it not? It happened then and it happens still today. And so that's why the New Testament is filled with such admonishments. Urging us to every day watch our step. You know, watch our choices. Watch our decisions. Because conformity, conformity to worldliness or conformity to error, it's a path that is taken. It is a path that we take. It doesn't happen accidentally. It's a path that we take, and, as, and it's a process that eventually will turn our hearts. That's what goes on. But the point is, how does this happen? Because it doesn't happen overnight, does it? How? How could this happen to us? I suggest to you that, first of all, this divergence, this distraction, this apostasy, this falling away, this divergence in our personal lives, but also could happen among us as a congregate of believers. Either case, how does it start? Well, I suggest to you it begins with toleration. We begin to tolerate something. You and I live in a world in a culture, in a country where moral and political, our culture is constantly pressuring us to tolerate almost everything and anything. That's the culture we live in. It wants us to tolerate 
even things that God condemns. That's, that's what we live in today. And, that, and we're pressured. We're constantly bombarded with this. And we need to understand, so that's, that's what we're fighting against. We're not just fighting against, you know, an, a, an individual thing. We're fighting in a, t- a whole world here that calls us to tolerate everything, even those things that God condemns. In Romans chapter 12, for example, verse 9, we're told to abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That's what we're told. Christians then and now are being taught and encouraged and exhorted, abhor what is wrong, abhor abhor what is evil, abhor what is sinful. Over time, though, does our abhorrence sometimes lessen? What we abhorred more intensely 20 years ago, do we have the same kind of abhorrence to it? Not always. Not always. And what it is, is our culture of tolerance, it wears on us. Does it not? Don't you get tired? Tired of the fight? Tired of standing up for Jesus when it's not always so easy to do? The word tolerance defines, as you know, means to allow, to permit to not interfere with. I find that interesting. You think about the various degrees of tolerance. Maybe, you know, I, I wouldn't permit it in myself, but I'm not going to interfere in any way. That's a form of tolerance. And I want to suggest to you, we need to be very careful as saints of God today that we do not confuse tolerance or toleration with forbearance they are not the same thing tolerance or toleration is not forbearance it does not mean the same thing nor does it mean long suffering either god is long suffering and we need to praise the lord for that that he has suffered long with all of us Not just with humanity, but even in our own lives, he suffers long with us. God is long-suffering, but God never, God never tolerates sin. God never tolerates disobedience. He doesn't tolerate it. He holds every man, every soul accountable. Now, he may suffer long but he never tolerates with the sin. And accountability is always there. And with that being said, now we turn very quickly at the passage you have there in Revelation chapter 2, the familiar account of the church of Thyatira. And everything said about them wasn't good. This is God's people here. Here is a church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And there are some things that the Lord is addressing that needs to be addressed, and they need, and they need to address them correctly as well. But I want you just to glance very quickly there in chapter 20, I mean, excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 20, where it says, the, where the Lord is rebuking the church. He's rebuking the church because the church in Thyatira tolerated a prophetess. 
in their midst. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So here is God, here is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one who stands in the midst of the lampstands and knows all, everything about them, every good thing and every bad thing. And what he says to the church at Thyatira, he says, I have this against you, and this needs to be fixed. He says, you are tolerating a false prophetess, and you need to address it. I want to show you that there's a difference between you know, being tolerant and being, and being long-suffering. For example, in verse 21, the Lord himself talking about this prophetess named Jezebel. He says, I gave her time to repent, even Jezebel. God was suffering long with this sister in Christ named Jezebel who had gone astray. He says, I, I gave her time to repent. He didn't tolerate it. She was accountable. And if she doesn't repent, it says, he says, and she does not want, but she says she does not want to repent of her immorality. And so therefore, he explains what is in store for her and all those who follow her. So we don't need to be a people that become tolerant, and, like, and not only in the standpoint of a church, but you think about, okay, our personal life. You think about, what do we tolerate when it comes to language? What do you tolerate when it comes to our attire, our dress, the questions of modesty and immodesty? What do we tolerate when it comes to the entertainment we engage in? You think, just go down the list. You know, what do we tolerate when it comes to, you know, whether we speak up about various kinds of immorality? Not just on a church and congregational level, but as individuals. How do we get to where we are those that are described in Galatians 1, or Hebrews 3, or 2 Peter 3? How, you know, how do we get the saints to that point? Well, it begins, I suggest to you, with this idea of tolerance. The way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is radically different from our world. It is very different from our world. And it's very different from the way people think, really. When you look at the purity of the gospel, and maybe, you know, we're not being as radical in our devotion. <laughs> maybe we're tolerating some things in ways we shouldn't. But the way of Christ is different from the world. It's different from the way people think. It's different from the philosophies of men. And so therefore, living in this world, you and I living in it day after day after day after day, it takes a toll on us, does it not? It gets wearisome, does it not? Particularly when you're trying your best to be separate we are called out of the world while living in the world, and we're trying so hard to be separate, to separate ourselves from it, to be the holy children that we're called to be and can be because our loving God and Father is merciful and gracious, and he is transforming us into the image of his Son. But without circumspection, without care, 
our involvement in the world, our interaction with the world can slowly give rise to the compromises of tolerance. A little leaven does what? Well, a little, little leaven leavens us. It leavens us. We're not above being leavened. In our personal life, in our family life, in our church life, we're not above it. And it begins simply by us showing some attitudes of tolerance that we shouldn't. And maybe it's just we just don't interfere. We don't speak up and speak the truth in love, maybe. You know, we don't take a stand you know, and so people see the radiance of Christ. Like, wow, you are really different. You are so different from the rest of the world. It's hard. It, it's really tough to be the light that the world needs us to be. But that's only the, the beginning of this divergence, this path that if we're not careful, we can find ourselves on. It begins with tolerance, with toleration. But then as you move forward, this toleration then leads to acceptance. Acceptance defined by your Webster Dictionary simply means to receive willingly, to receive favorably, to agree or to consent. In Psalm 1-1, that's a familiar psalm to, I think, everyone in the audience tonight. When you read Psalm 1, the familiar passage where you have the psalmist there describes this path. It really does. It describes the path of divergence, the path of apostasy. And he does so by saying that this, this path is one of walking in the wicked's counsel. It is also one of standing in the sinner's path. And eventually, you're sitting in the scoffer's seat. That's the path. You go from walking to standing to sitting where you don't need to be. A child of God, you and I, you will not fall from the Lord all of a sudden by approving 100% what is contrary to Christ's doctrine. That's not how it happens. It doesn't happen, oh, okay, you know, yesterday, you know, I believed it all, and tomorrow you're going to wake up, I suddenly don't believe it, anything of it. No, that's not how it happens. It began really back here with this tolerance of some, some fashion, some form, you know, whatever it is. You know, whether it's talking about a, 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 a personal struggle with temptation. And now you begin to tolerate it because the world says it's okay. But from there it goes to the point where we start accepting it. We, we receive it willingly and favorably and there's a sense of a, there's some agreement and, and consent with it. And so it's a gradual process of accepting error, accepting falseness, accepting the world into our life. I think that is hinted at when you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the occasion where in the church at Corinth, as you know well, in the church there was an immoral brother. And the church is being addressed here because of their acceptance of that brother in a way that he should not have been accepted. And so Paul addresses the problem and 
in the second epistle uh, to the Corinthians, we find that the church handled it. And so the problem was corrected and the brother repented. And so the immorality was, was handled correctly and it was handled properly. And so here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, there's reported there is immorality among you. You're familiar with these words. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. The world doesn't even prove of what this guy was doing. Someone has his father's wife. Now, he says to the church, you have become arrogant. Some versions say you have become puffed up. Strong words, don't you think? Strong words. He says, you have become arrogant or puffed up and have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, Paul continues to expound on that. The lesson is not for us to talk about the disciplinary action that they're directed to take. But the point is, here's a church who, because of an arrogance, because of an attitude, a wrong attitude, you know, basically accepted and received favorably this immoral brother in their fellowship. And Paul says, you need, to, you need to correct this. And they do. They had hearts to hear the truth, and we rejoice in that. But you turn over to the epistle of 2 John, the little letter of 2 John, where here we find the concern over similar action in regard to our relationship. And not so much on a congregational level, I don't think, even though I think it applies, but perhaps even more so on an individual level. And so you go here and you read, you know, beginning there in verse 8, he says, watch yourselves. You know, watchfulness must be constantly exercised by all of us all the time. And so he says, watch yourselves that you do not lose what you have accomplished. He's talking to his brothers in Christ and he's commending them. He says, now be careful, be on guard, watch. You know, you have, you have accomplished, you know, to this point in your walk with the Lord. Uh, and, he, and so you think in verse 4. He says, I was glad to find some of your children walking in truth. Just to receive the commandment to do from the Lord. And so he, he's glad to hear this. You know, hear these children you know, of faith walking in the truth like they should. They have not strayed. But he goes on to say, but you need to still watch yourself. Be careful. Watch yourself. That you do not lose what you have accomplished. But so that you may receive a full reward. And he goes on to say, anyone, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. That includes me and you. If we go too far, can we go too far? Yes, we can go too far. The Spirit says so. If we go too far, yeah. And if we don't abide in Christ's teaching, if we don't stay in the teaching of our Lord and Savior, he says, we don't have God. What we have accomplished, we've lost. We don't have God now. And the one who abides in the teaching, so the positive is if you do do this rightly, he says, you have the Father and the Son. But then notice what he then says in the next two verses in the context of watching out, guarding, making sure you know, you, know, you and I have the Father in our life. We have the Son. We have the Spirit reigning in our, in our lives, in our hearts, in our homes, in, in our congregation. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? Well, the teaching of Christ. 
If, we, if one doesn't bring the teaching prize, he says, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. I've always wrestled with this passage because this is very strong language. Very strong language. But the point that Paul, excuse me, Paul, John the Apostle is saying is you need to be guarded. You need to be watchful, even to the point that you know, your favorable greetings do not communicate approval of wrongdoing. You need to be very careful that your favorable greetings do not communicate your consent of wrongdoing that puts you in a relation that says, I accept this favorably. And so he says, if, they're, if they are not walking and abiding like they should, he says, be careful, watch out. You do not want to participate with them in evil deeds. That's powerful and sobering. And it's not always easy to do. But it's something we have to work at. We have to grow into. Our associations and our friendships in the world are good opportunities to convert souls to Jesus Christ. That's what our business is all about, is to convert souls to Jesus. Because there is no other way but Jesus. And nobody's going to get to heaven without Jesus. Salvation is only through him. And so our association and our interaction and our friendships, all of that are wondrous opportunities to convert souls to Christ. And that's how we need to approach those relationships. An opportunity where we can sow the seed. An opportunity where we can let our light shine. But at the same time, be watchful. At the same time, be careful. At the same time, guard yourself. Why? Because those same opportunities can become opportunities for a saint to be swayed. We're not above it. It can become an opportunity for a saint to be pulled to the point that they go too far. To the point that they're not abiding in the teaching of Christ as they ought. So yes, we need to grasp the opportunities in our interaction, in our association. Yes, we're called to, to be separate from the world, but God needs us in the world as long as we have strength and breath to be the light and to sound forth the gospel to the saving of souls. Yes, God needs lights. And you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. But understand... You must be careful. You must watch your steps. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, in the context of teaching error on the subject of the resurrection, beautiful chapter, profound chapter on about our Lord's resurrection, but also our resurrection. And what a glorious day that will be. But in that context, it says, bad company corrupts good morals. And the point is, watch out with your interaction, your association with the world, because there is falsehood out there. And you need to be careful. You need to take heed when you're out there in the world trying to save souls. Keep up the good work. But don't become one who begins to accept 
gradually start accepting what's not the light. The devil, our adversary, and he is. The devil is your adversary. He is the most serious adversary you have. He is your adversary. He is your enemy. And he is constantly scheming. He is scheming day and night to change our view of God. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Through his deception, he, he changed Eve's view of God. That's what he did. He spoke some truth, but he twisted it a little bit. He's constantly scheming to find a way to change our view of God, to change our view of his word. And he's able to do so even by misleading us through scriptures. He, he knows the Bible. Ever thought about that? Now, he did not understand God's mystery in Christ and what God was going to accomplish ultimately through the workings of Satan. But he knows Scripture, and he can take that Scripture and he can throw it in your face and make you question and make you doubt and make you begin to be swayed and pulled. Along the way. It begins with being tolerant. And then secondly, we begin to accept it. This favorableness, this kind of agreement, consenting to it. And once we accept it, then what happens is the path of divergence is we embrace it now. Man's mind can become futile. Paul writes about the Gentile world in Ephesians chapter 4. And it talks about how the mind, the mind of man becomes futile. It can. The mind of man can become futile. And his understanding can become darkened and his heart hardened. That can happen not just outside there in the world, but it can happen to a Christian as well. And it does happen to Christians from time to time. Through worldly allurements, through worldly agents, Satan is constantly trying to get us to focus on the earth. That's where he wants you to focus. He wants you to focus on the earth, on the earthly things, on the earthly relationships. On all the here and now stuff. It all has a place. You know, we're to be diligent employees and employers. And we're to be taking care of our family. Yeah, there's a place and a role that we must fulfill in a righteous way to carry out our call in Christ. But the, Lord, but the, the adversary, Satan, wants us to focus on everything here. He wants to distract us. He wants to preoccupy us. He wants to attract us. And so when you think about the meaning of embrace, it's similar to acceptance, but a little bit stronger. Because it has to do about, yes, accepting readily, but then it's, it's about taking it up. It's about adopting it now. 
And that's exactly, that's exactly what you can see, for example, back in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. A knowledge of God and a knowledge of His commandments does not guarantee. Think about this. A knowledge of God and a knowledge of His commandments does not guarantee that a person of faith will not heartily approve of what God disapproves. Just because they know doesn't mean they will not go against God. In Romans chapter 1, as you look there, at the very end, after describing the Roman world... And it was the world, it was the culture in which the gospel was revealed and the church was established. It was the time when Jesus was, was crucified, was this culture. And, he, and he's described that culture, you know, you know, beginning up in verse, you know, verse 20, or 18 actually, and reading on it. But you come down to the last verse in verse 32, and notice what it says. And although they know, listen... Although they know the ordinance of God, they know it. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's embrace. This is an individual who is a man, a person of faith, who eventually embraces, takes up and adopts what he knows God disapproves of. But just note, notice the, the, the process, though. If you could just very quickly glance in the context of Romans 1. Just notice the process here in Romans 1. And you look there, for, for example, in verse 21. Even though they knew God, they knew God, the world knew God, and you got those of faith who know God, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. became futile in their speculation. So it begins with this idea, okay, these are individuals, they know God. They know there is a God. They know that. But what do they do? They choose not to honor him in the way that he should be honored. And then you drop down a little further, you look in verse 25, and he says, now he says, and they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So they've gone from not only, okay, they know God and they don't honor him, they've gone to the point now when it is they exchange the truth for a lie. See the process of divergence? To the point eventually, when you come to verse 32, now what's happening, they're embracing the practice. They embrace it. You know, how, how does this happen? Well, it begins way back with some form or fashion or aspect of tolerating something. And you do that for a while, eventually you find... That brother perhaps accepting something. And they do that for a while. And then, of course, this is all gradual. 
Yeah, and, and then one day that you find that brother to your surprise embracing something that they know the ordinance of God disapproves of. To the point that in the, finally the fourth and final step of divergent is promotion. Meaning, what does it mean to promote? Well, it means to, to, to bring about growth, to further growth, to publicize, to advertise. Think about the process. It began way back here. I, I began to tolerate something that I shouldn't have tolerated. And then one day I find myself accepting something I shouldn't be accepting. And eventually I embrace something I definitely know I shouldn't embrace. And then one day I just promote what is in opposition to God and Jesus Christ. You see, once conformity, once condoning finds residence, once it finds root in the life and in the heart of a saint of God, or at least one who was once a saint of God, it is logical. doesn't mean it's right. It is logical that in time, worldliness or obvious error will be promoted even by one who was once called out of the world and was holy to God, but has ceased to be that. In Acts 20, in Acts 20, as we begin, we bring this lesson to a close. In Acts 20, Paul is admonishing the elders of Ephesus. And you recall that conversation. And so very quickly, verse 29, I know that after my departure, and so after Paul is no more walking and working for the cause of Christ on earth, he says, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and, and from among your own selves, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now they're, prom- they're promoting. They're teaching it, and they're promoting it, and they're drawing Christians after themselves, after their own ways. Second Peter, our last passage for this evening. Second Peter chapter two, chapter two. You find in his admonishment, in his exhortation of, of this of this in this epistle about falsehood and and, and false teachers and the judgment to come that it reads in the very beginning of chapter 2, he says, false prophets arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. It's just what the, the world is. It's not right. It's not what God wants. It is not what God desires or wills. But the fact is, God, who knows all, knows the hearts of all men, through his spirit says, There were false prophets in the past. There will be false teachers in the future. It goes on to say, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Wow. 
Those who were bought and purchased by the blood of Christ, one died denying the very one who once washed away their sin. He says, it happens. He says, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This idea of introducing falsehood and finding a following, even among God's people, that has been a tactic of our adversary, the devil, for centuries. There's nothing new under the sun. There really isn't. And so through this deception... What Satan is trying to do through his various allurements, through his various agents, what he's trying to do, he's trying to make his own converts. Jesus is not the only one converting people. So is the devil. The devil is converting souls to himself so that they will promote his ways and promote his lies. And it's for that reason we are again and again throughout the writings of the New Testament as God's people, chosen people, special people of God, we are reminded that we must guard ourselves against this world, against the love of this world, against the allurements of this world. We must guard ourselves against it. There is a right path and we can know that path and that path will save you and me. But there are multitudes of paths that will not. But there's only one that will. And that's Jesus Christ. Influence. Wow. Such a small word, really, and you you think about it, but such a powerful concept. Influence is so powerful. It can be used for good. And that's exactly what the Lord wants you to be doing Using your influence for good. Going out in the world, shining brightly, radiating the light of God, and the light of Jesus. Exposing darkness. Driving it from you. That's what the Lord needs. He needs that kind of influence in the world. But that's, that word also can be very powerful in a bad way. And that's where we're warned. Be careful. Watch out. Guard yourself. It's a process. And just begin simply by tolerating something. And then one day we find ourselves accepting it. And before long, we hardly know it, but we're actually embracing it. And then finally one day we're promoting something. But years ago, you would have abhorred. So be careful. You've accomplished so much, the Apostle Peter says. Don't lose your reward. Because some saints do. Some saints do. If you're here tonight, and you're not one of God's people, you're not one of God's children, you're not a saint of the Lord who's been sanctified by the calling of Christ, you're not a Christian, we want to urge you to make a decision, to make a commitment tonight And we would love to help you do that. If you believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, and you believe it with all your heart, then why not tonight 
why not tonight confess that with your mouth, unashamedly? Repenting of the sins you've committed, the very sins that are going to send you to hell. Repent of those things and be buried with Christ. And to his burial, die with Christ. So he may raise you to walk in his life, cleansed of your sin and adopted into God's family and made a brother of Christ. If you're ready to make that decision, we want to encourage you to do that tonight. If you're already a Christian, you have called upon the name of the Lord, but there is sin in your life that is separating you from your Father and from your Savior right now. If we can assist you, pray with you, pray for you, whatever your need may be spiritually, we want to be a support, we want to be encouraged, we want to be a help. If we can do that, we invite you as well. Lord, make your wishes known before we stand and sing the song that's this about.